0: A very good morning to you. My name's Neil, along with my wonderful, beautiful wife, Kate. We lead this church, the Southwest Sun and Vineyard. It's great to see you this morning. If you're new or visiting, as Mike said, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to connect you with some part of the body of Christ, even if it's not this part. So do have a, uh, go and visit the team over there and they'll, they'll connect you. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Joshua. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some lying around at the back. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, um, please feel free to take one with our compliments, just can we encourage you to read it rather than use it as a doorstop. If you're not sure where Joshua is, it's towards the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right, way, work your way from the front. Over the past few weeks, we've been doing a series and we've been looking at the Bible and we've been doing so really um, maybe in the vain hope, but with the hope of addressing some of the problems some of us may have with the Bible. And if you can cast your mind back to a few few weeks, we began by asking the question whether any of us are actually reading our Bibles. That was the first thing, which is why um, it's very important that you've all brought them this morning. Yeah? Yeah, 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 great. That's good. (laughs) It's not good, but anyway. Um, and so then assuming that we are reading it, then the next question is, do any of us really know how to actually read it? So do we know how to, well, we know how to read it, obviously, because those of us who can read can read, but are we reading it well? Are we reading it properly? And then the next sort of question was, what do we do when some of us finally admit that some of us actually don't really like some of the stuff that we find in the Bible, or um, some of us find parts of the Bible, if we're being honest, a little bit offensive. And um, what we're trying to do, and what we're wanting to do in all of this, we're not trying to undermine the scriptures in any way, shape, or form. In fact, quite the opposite. All we're wanting to do is to encourage a dialogue, an honest and an engaged conversation as the fellowship of the believers as the community of the church about some of the very real tensions that some of us have with certain aspects of the scriptures that's all we're trying to do and this morning we're carrying on sort of from where we left off last week and if you weren't here last week um, can I encourage you to listen to the podcast not because it's so brilliant, but just because it will help contextualize some of those things for you, because this is really the sort of second in a two-parter, and I'm not sure that last week will make that much sense without this week, and I'm not sure that this week will make that much sense without last week. But um, So can I encourage you, if you missed last week, to try and listen on the podcast. What we began to delve into last week, uh, perhaps by error, um, was an attempt to open up some of the more challenging specifically violent passages of the old testament and how we might think about them Uh, as i say it was angels rushing in where fools fear to tread or fools rushing in where angels fear to tread even and um, one of the things that we were exploring was whether it might be possible that some of our interpretations around our reading of some of these more tricky Old Testament passages might actually be out of step. It might be out of kilter. And we sort of talked about that. We began talking about that last week. And then where we got to at the end was, we're saying, well, that's fine, maybe. But then we're still left with what some people call the drastic marching orders that you kind of read about in some of these Old Testament war passages and, and texts and there's no getting away from the fact that as the Israelites go into the promised land as they go into Canaan um, in and through these battles there's a whole series of battles um, the Israelites are given some seriously severe and harsh commands to carry out and we read verses in these bits of Joshua and, and around there where it seems like they're being told to show no mercy they're told to utterly destroy their enemies. They're told not to leave alive anything that breathes. And if you're anything like me, we're reading that and it's like, I don't know if I can say this out loud, but that sounds like, it, it sounds a little bit like it could be genocide. Is that what's going on here? Um, is what we see in the book of Joshua and in other places like around the Old Testament, is it genocide? Is it Ethnic cleansing. Because there are many Christ, uh, crit- uh, critics of the Christian faith who use these passages and others to say uh, what Richard Dawkins basically says in his book, The God Delusion. He says that the killing of the Canaanites was an act of ethnic cleansing in which bloodthirsty massacres were carried out with xenophobic relish by a god Dawkins describes as, and I quote, arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist. Infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's what he thinks of God. Now while hopefully even the very notion that such a quote exists should gall us as followers of Jesus the reality is that this is what many people outside the church believe God to be like and indeed there are more than a handful of people within the church who believe God to be a little bit like that too but is that who God really is is God really Commanding the slaughter of the innocent? Is God a genocidal maniac? Is God a moral monster? Did Jesus' great, 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 great grandparents really carry out the violent slaughter of unarmed men and women and children at his father's command? Is that what's really going on here in these Old Testament passages? Is that who, really, who, who God really is? Well, uh, a little bit like last week, I want to attempt to maybe give us a possibly slightly different perspective on what's going on and the first would be this um, cities civilians kings and prostitutes was the heading i came up with and when we read about israel entering the promised land again and again what happens is we see them coming against um, cities places like jericho and I, Ai, uh, have a look at i think it's joshua 6 verses 1 um, to 5 the text should come up there and just have a read through that but one of the things that you see happening repeatedly through These uh, Old Testament passages um, is the word um, city. It it crops up a lot. There are a lot of cities that are mentioned. Now, the trouble is when I read this, and when we read this, or some of us read this. uh, For me, as a 21st century Londoner, um, 20th, 21st century Londoner, born and bred, like I know about cities, Um, and so when I read about a city in the Old Testament, I think, okay, I know what that means. You know, cities are where people live, and and actually cities are like where lots of people live. And, you know, we walk out of our flats and our houses and there's another eight and a half million people somewhere nearby. And um, there are schools and there are shops and there are restaurants and there are hospitals and there are businesses. Um, the cities where everything happens. You know, cities are where everyone lives. Our story may have begun in a garden, but it ends in a city. Cities are awesome. According to the UN by 2050, 70% of the world's, Population will live in cities, which for some of us is amazing, and some of us is terrifying. Um, to date, there are 33 cities with populations of more than 10 million. Tokyo tops the charts at 37 million, uh, followed by New Delhi at 29 million. And so that's kind of what some of us think about. And is that what we're talking about here in the Old Testament, perhaps on a slightly smaller scale? Because that's what's in my brain. So when I read about this stuff happening in Jericho and I, uh, it's pretty natural that the first things that spring to my mind are, oh my gosh, this is mass civilian massacre. This is going to be carnage. But could it be that perhaps in the ancient world things were slightly different? Could it be that the cities were not civilian population centers? Uh, Cities, particularly in and around the ancient Middle East context, where we're talking, were actually more like um, small, fortified military outposts. Oh, okay. Uh, Cities were used to defend and protect the roads and the routes leading up to the towns and the villages, which is where the people actually were. To Israel's ears, in the Old Testament, when they kind of read and hear the word uh, city, it would have conjured up these images of a fortified military garrison. And so maybe we should be thinking more along the lines of the Great Wall of China. We need to be de- designed as this military defense against invasion rather than as this place where lots of people lived. Cities were where the soldiers were. Cities weren't where the civilians were. All the people, all the men, the women, the children, they were in the towns and the villages in the surrounding countryside and they were looking to these cities to provide them and afford them military protection. So For example, when we read about Jericho, biblical scholar Paul Copeland in his book, Is God a Moral Monster, says this. He says, all the archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian population existed at Jericho, I, or other cities mentioned in Joshua. Jericho was a small settlement of probably a hundred or fewer soldiers. This is why all of Israel could circle it seven times and then do battle against the city in one day. Old Testament scholar Richard Hess writes that Jericho and I, the two cities given the most attention in Joshua, probably only held 100 to 150 soldiers each. As a city, Jericho was the first line of defense. It was a fort guarding the travel routes up to Jerusalem and Bethel. Civilian populations, they lived up in the villages and they lived in the towns up in the hills. So when Israel utterly destroys a city like Jericho or I, we need to maybe think and ensure that we're reading this in context, is all I'm trying to say. Perhaps we should have a picture of a military fort being taken over rather than a mass civilian massacre. This is perhaps more like God taking down the Great Wall of China than raising Beijing. It's more about taking out a defensive military installation rather than genocide. So, We read about Israel taking out cities. Another thing that we read about a lot is Israel killing kings. That kind of comes up a lot as well. So have a look at Joshua chapter 8. Israel's taking out cities and she's taking out and killing off kings. And again, when we think of kings, when I think of kings, I tend to think of heads of state or key political leaders. I think of national monarchs or presidents, But again, when we're reading in the Bible, what we're reading in the Bible context um, tends to use the word king in a different light. And here the word sort of refers to military generals and officials, which is one of the reasons that there are so many of them. They're all over the flipping place. These were military leaders who led their soldiers into battle. So again, maybe we're just getting a slightly fuller, fleshed out picture of these military generals in these fortified military outposts defending these roads up to where the people are. And if any of this is true, as biblical scholar Christopher Wright puts it, he says, what we're reading here is one of Joshua's armies attacking military strongholds, knocking out generals and putting their soldiers to flight, not invading cities, assassinating presidents and slaughtering civilians. Okay, so maybe we're just starting to get a different perspective, okay? And maybe something is starting to take make up some more sense and then you know if you know the story of Jericho you kind of ask well what about Rahab right so she's definitely mentioned in the story and she doesn't sound or look or seem anything like a soldier uh, to me well again scholars believe that Rahab she was the prostitute who ran uh, the hostel within uh, the garrison and apparently it was very common in these military forts to have a hostel where uh, the, the soldiers could come and drink and because unfortunately sometimes the soldiers wanted more than just a beer um, these hostels were run by prostitutes and these hostels were also the places where people coming in from outside the city would come and stay mostly so the military in the garrison could keep an eye on them which is why if you know the story that it would make sense that Joshua and the spies end up staying with Rahab and it's interesting that Rahab is really the only civilian that's mentioned in all of these city conquests. And she survives. Her life is spared. Okay, so what else? What about um, men, women, and children? Um, have a look at Joshua six twenty-one. 21. Uh, again, through all of these texts, it keeps cropping up all over the place. Um, something along the lines of men, women, children. Uh, and children, men, women, young and old it it all kind of crops up as this all-encompassing phrase and in English it can be a bit misleading possibly because we read that and we immediately conclude, well there you go, you know they've killed all the men, they've killed all the women, they've killed all the children that sounds like civilian massacre to me, that sounds like genocide, however the historians again and the the Hebrew scholars, this uh, this is a Hebrew phrase that is used to describe totality like everyone or all, even if women and children weren't present and which because we're talking about military garrisons here wouldn't have been the case there wouldn't have been women and children in these forts and so the ancient Hebrew scholars or the, the, the ancient Hebrew scholars well scholars of ancient Hebrew um, argued that no women or children or any other civilians for that matter would have been in these forts because um, they're not usually there to begin with and secondly when battle comes If you happen to find yourself in the fort, you leave, you get out. You know, when we read of ancient warfare, much of our understanding and the things that we picture in our imagination comes from a cross between the Middle Ages and mm, Game of Thrones. And when we think of battle, we picture everyone running into the city for protection. And we're just hoping that if you're in King's Landing, that, you know, Denarius... Targaryen isn't going to arrive with two dragons up her sleeve and roast Jewel. Um, in the ancient Middle East, however, that, that, that's not what happened. It was very, very different. It would have been the opposite, in fact. If battle was coming, you wouldn't run into the city. You would get out of the city. You would head for the hills, which is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that it will soon be destroyed. Then those who are in Judea must run away to the hills. Those who are in the city must leave and those who are out in the country must not go into the city. That was the ancient way of doing things, not running into the city, but getting away from this military fort. When one of those cities or forts was in danger of falling people wouldn't simply wait there to be killed they would flee so could it be that what we're reading in these texts is slightly different perhaps to some of our immediate cultural assumptions around what's going on here and this is about taking down military forces taking down gateways and the entrance posts to these mighty empires these bastions of injustice and oppression and tyranny that we talked about last week Okay, so that's military cities. Then there's this whole thing around language, right? And understanding biblical um, language around uh, war and military narratives. Have a look at Joshua um, 11. This is 11, verse 11 and 12. And you read something like, everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone That breathed and he burned Hazor itself. Joshua took all of the royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them. And you're like, Oh, great! Like, why is that even there? Like, could you not have been more clear perhaps when you wrote this flipping thing down so that thousands of years later we weren't in the quandary that many of us find ourselves in because we're reading phrases like they utterly destroyed. Canaan's army, they showed no mercy they didn't leave anyone that was alive they didn't, they didn't let anyone survive and, and we're reading that going, what the heck is going on here? because again, it sounds like genocide it sounds like mass murder and again, when we read the accounts of military history from the ancient Middle East, and we put this into context there is an established widely known um, liberal use of hyperbole Uh, This massively exaggerated language that exists. We destroyed them. We totally annihilated them. We wiped them off the face of the earth, and so on, and so on, and so on. And and we read it from our armchairs in the 21st century and say, oh my gosh, that sounds a lot like the language of genocide to me. These people are um, extinct. You know, they've been wiped out. They've said it themselves. It's in black and white. I just read it. But then the the tricky thing is you keep reading through the narrative of the scripture and before you know it um the very people who were supposedly wiped out over here are somehow um back up and running strong as ever like a few years later or down a couple of chapters later and don't turn to it now but 1 samuel um, 15 is is as clear-cut a story of complete obliteration as you can get the amalekites they're not getting out of this, and then you read on in verse 20, in chapter twenty-seven of one chapter uh, of one Samuel. You read how David and his men go up and utterly destroy the Amalekites, and you're like, uh, uh, what? Like, how did you utterly destroy the Amalekites in chapter twenty-seven when you'd utterly destroyed them, or someone had utterly destroyed them in chapter fifteen? And I thought this had sort of already happened already. And then they pop up again in 1 Samuel 30, and then 250 years later during the reign of King Hezekiah, they are still around. And then when you read the book of Esther, they are still around, despite being utterly destroyed in 1 Samuel 15. Despite being utterly destroyed, the Amalekites continued to feature in Israel's history for over a thousand years. So, again, like what on earth is going on here? Could you please not make this slightly clearer and cleaner for us rather than making it muddy and opaque? Um, maybe it's helpful to filter it through the lenses of your favorite sports team. You know, After the game, after the match, the talk on the terraces is, you know, we smashed them, we thrashed them, we annihilated them, we, we whipped them, we wiped the floor with them, we destroyed them. And if you just went by that language, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that sounded like a brutal game. You know, rugby, football, it, you know, it's like, what a terrible thing. Like, they were utterly destroyed. I mean, goodness me. It all sounds pretty grim, you know. And it might have been a victory. Maybe it was even a decent win. But at the end of the day, what you really mean is, you know, we beat them 2-0. And we get it. We're not offended by that. We're not mortified by that. We're not sort of getting genocide watch involved. We're like, we understand what's being said. It's an understood way of speaking. It makes sense to us this however this military language it makes no sense to us whatsoever but we see this language all over the ancient world and these passages just do not make sense if they are read literally which again we talked about a few weeks ago again it comes back to what we were saying one of the first questions that we need to be asking ourselves when we're reading the bible is what genre of writing is this what kind of of writing is this and when we're reading Joshua and many of these challenging Old Testament passages we have to recognize that much of it is written in the genre of ancient military history and ancient military history uses a lot of hyperbole uh, Christopher Wright again uh, puts it like this in his book uh, The God I Don't Understand which is a fantastic book. I recommend that nice uh, easy read but very helpful he writes this, he says, we must also recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric exceeded the reality on the ground. This isn't because the biblical writers, this isn't to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. Okay, so we've looked at cities, civilians, kings and prostitutes, um, Men, women, children, hyperbolic language in ancient military history. Uh, Lastly, let's just dig around the language of killing off or driving out. Killing off or driving out. The primary language that's used with Israel and Canaan um, is driving out and not killing off. Uh, Again, Joshua 20, um, it's not Joshua 23, there are 23 23 23 23 chapters. that doesn't sound right to me I know but is it actually true this is where you need your Bibles because I could be just making everything up how many chapters are in Joshua oh they're 24 oh it's longer than I thought is my, is my text actually right Twenty-three nine. you just need to double check me because I went camping oh yeah look at that Twenty-three nine. the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations to this day no one has been able to withstand you One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised, so be very careful to love the Lord your God. Okay, it is in the Bible. That's a relief. So that's why you need your Bibles. Um this language of driving out so there's this language of driving out, it kinda crops up all over the place and it's there in the context of the Canaanites, Canaanites, it, it crops up like 60 times in the Old Testament. And driving out is the language of eviction. It's not the language of slaughter. So you read passages like Deuteronomy 11, where God says he will drive out all the nations before them. And, and the picture is like of a landowner who um, is evicting um, the tenants, if you like, on the land, who've occupied the land and are destroying the land. They're spoiling the land. They're, they're, they're defacing. They're, they're, they're trashing it. They're, they're killing off the land. And think back to what we were talking about last week about um, some of these nations and these empires around um, Canaan. And the picture is of God doing the evicting. It's God doing the driving out. And this language of being driven out, it's not new to us. It's not unfamiliar language. It's exactly the same language of Eden. It's the same language of Adam and Eve and it's exactly the same thing happening and and the comparison is stark and it's important you see Adam and Eve are put in the garden and they through their choices and their decisions and their actions they unleash sin into the garden they wreak devastation on the land and um, on the space and, and as a result they are driven out that's the language, Genesis 3. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the, to the tree of life. It's exactly the same phrase, um, exactly the same language that's being used here. It's exactly the same picture. The, the nations of Canaan have been unleashing devastation and destruction and havoc and chaos and tyranny and oppression and violence into the garden, into the precious promised land and so God is now driving out, not Adam and Eve, he's driving out those tyrannical oppressive powerhouses and instead of um, what he's doing is he's giving the land over to this tribe of Israel, the, the last and the least and the lost, this homeless wandering nation of vagrants that we talked about last week. What's interesting, if you keep on reading through the narrative of the whole scriptures, is later in Israel's history, when Israel rebels against God, and they unleash just as much destruction and havoc and chaos on the land as Canaan ever did, guess what happens? They, too, get driven out. And we discover the language of exile. So Israel ends up being driven out. As well, the point for today is the language that's being used isn't massacre or indiscriminate killing. It's eviction um, over time, and actually over a long time. It's like 400 years. There's a whole load of stuff in Genesis chapter 15 about God speaking and talking about what's coming, and He says, you know, the sin of the Amalekites, the sin of the, the, the Amorites hasn't yet reached its, its its fullness, its fulfillment. And so this eviction process was a long and slow. Um, process and you may well listen to this and read it and you may um, very much disagree with all of it uh, that's absolutely fine you, you may read these texts and still have huge problems with them that's also absolutely fine um, I, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't have a problem with what you're reading about in the Bible I think what we need to be clear on is exactly what it is that we have a problem with You know, if it's genocide, if it's ethnic cleansing that's causing us offense, it may be possible that we need to go back to the scriptures. It may be that we need to dig around and root around and find out for ourselves if that's actually what's going on here. Yeah? What are we saying? Um, We've got all these pretty difficult passages which seem on the surface to be saying one thing, uh, but hopefully and possibly may actually be saying something completely and utterly different and for us the challenge is trying to disentangle some of this uh, cultural assumptions around what we're reading and actually what's going on and so we've got cities which aren't like any city we know uh, but are more like military garrisons and civilian centres we've got this unfamiliar strange language of hyperbole and exaggerated war rhetoric and we wish they'd just say what they mean Um, We've got this frequent use of language that sounds more like being driven out rather than being killed off. And, um, you know, all of this, the stuff that we're talking about, it may be a really helpful reframing of some of the details of these narratives. But there is no getting away from the fact, genocide or not, that the conquest of Canaan um, is a difficult narrative. It's not an easy narrative for us. To get our heads around. Again, we have to sort of filter it through the the redemptive hermeneutic of the of the whole arc of Scripture, right? Which is the way God is bringing redemption across the whole narrative and the whole arc of the story of Scripture. But it's difficult because it looks like, even if it's not genocide or ethnic cleansing, it looks like it's judgment and destruction. There's no getting away from the fact that this makes for hard reading. There's there's no getting away from the fact that there's much of the stuff that we're reading in the Old Testament around this that feels at odds with who we believe God to be and what we believe God to be like. I understand that. And that's kind of why we're attempting miserably probably to do this series you know none of this is simple none of this is straightforward brains far bigger than mine uh, struggle with it and wrestle with it and so i'm in no position at all to make declarations or proclamations as to what or how you should think um despite some of you asking me to give the answers on the back of a postcard um this is for us, I think, to work out together over a number of years as a fellowship. Um, because this is important because we have to contextualize this, as I was saying, in the overarching narrative of the Scripture. And the overarching narrative of the Scripture is one of salvation and blessing. The Amorites, it's interesting, the Amorites were the founders of Babylon, uh, perhaps one of the greatest civilizations of the ancient world. And they were known for um, bloody conquest and oppression, indiscriminate violence, um, all sorts of stuff. It's interesting, again, you just read some of this, you you read the narrative of the story. Um, When Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, they go east. Yeah, so... um, they're sent sent out and they go east and their descendants keep heading east until they eventually sort of settle and build Babylon is effectively what happens. Babylon is east of Eden. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, as he was then and who became Abraham, and he calls him um, to go west, basically. He calls him out of Babylon because you remember he's from Ur of the Chaldees or wherever and he leaves there and he goes um, west back towards Eden so Abraham was from Babylon and God is calling him out of Babylon into Canaan. and there's this chapter, Genesis chapter 12 um, and it's really brief we were looking at it in public calling on Wednesday Um, it's a really brief Kind of almost half a chapter, um, and uh, you could almost miss it. Um, but it's this pivotal moment in the narrative and the the arc again of Scripture, because it's be, it's basically the beginning of the redemptive arc of Scripture. It's the beginning of God's promise of salvation. It's the beginning of God's promise of redemption. Um, it's it's the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that. Uh, God made in uh, Genesis chapter 3 you know after the fall and this promise of redemption and salvation that's the overarching narrative of this book, the Bible this collection of books is all about redemption it's all about salvation so when we come across these challenging passages Um, we would be wise to not look at them in isolation, but look at them in the context of the overarching narrative of redemption and salvation that is the thread that runs all the way through the Scriptures. And when we come across these challenging passages, first of all, let's not lose sight of who God is. Let's not lose sight of all that we know to be true about who God is. Before we suddenly adopt Richard Dawkins wonderful quote let's remember who he is and reframe or rethink or work our way through those challenging passages in light of what we know to be true about him and then secondly um, let's keep being honest let's keep being honest with ourselves let's keep being honest with one another most importantly let's keep being honest with him about our struggles and our challenges with some of these texts that feel like they make no sense. It's okay to find passages of the scripture difficult. It's okay to find them challenging. It's okay to be like, I have no idea what's going on here. But let's be honest about that together. Let's find mechanisms through Sunday mornings, through the evening service, through small groups or whatever, to engage with one another on those conversations. And then let's see what the spirit of God does. Does that sound fair? Not politely. Very good. Why don't you stand?